a lot of these gambling sites, you know, like I said, they're down in Costa Rica. And at the time, I think all of Costa Rica was off of like a single OC3, which is 155 megabits per second for you know, people who've never talked Sonnet before. <laughs> you have to I feel like you have to be somewhat old to know what Sonnet even is. You know, so it was like 155 megs. So if I sent 200 megs, the entire country was offline. The time is not too far ahead when you will be able to have a box about so big on your desk which has a little screen on it and a dial and after dialing a key code you will dial the catalogue number of any book in the library of congress if you want to and at any rate that you wish the spread pages of that book will appear on your television screen welcome back to the lock and shield podcast presented by new star i'm your host john MacArthur, director of product for security intelligence and new star security solutions division with me today is our regular podcast contributor, Paige Enoch, who manages Newstar's Ultra Geopoint and Ultra Reputation data sets. Paige, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, John. There's a heat wave that's happening on the West Coast, so it's pretty warm here today, but feels like summer, so all good. I was going to say, still no signs of cicada or brood X <laughs> on the West Coast. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Again, yeah. As you said last podcast, a very distinctly Midwest <laughs> East Coast issue. Yep. All right. Well, today's episode is a special one. We're digging deep into the history of cybersecurity, back to the early days of DDoS attacks, uh, 25 years ago or so, and how those have evolved to present day. And with us today to dive into this fascinating topic is, as a special guest, our own Matt Wilson, Senior Director of Application Security here at Newstar. Now, Matt has over 20 years experience in the application network security space and was there at the beginning when DDoS DDoS attacks were first starting to disrupt the internet in the early 2000s. Before we get started, Matt, do you want to give us a quick description of your current role here at Newstar and, and the products you manage? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, so we, I own the Newstar's application security suite. So this is comprised of our uh, denial of service protection service, as well as our web app application firewall our bot management solutions, and the API protection suite. So that kind of all encompasses network and application security. Got it, got it. On a lighter note, we were just joking. You are currently, although you're based on the East Coast, you're currently in Arizona. So just to do a quick cicada check, you're not having issues where you are right now? No, there are no cicadas. Uh, I'm, I'm outside of Phoenix right now, and there are no cicadas right now. All right, Um Around here, it's just it's just way too hot. First off, um, <laughs> but second, the uh, the cicadas would you typically pop out in Phoenix in like August when we start getting more rain. But it's just it's too hot and too dry right now. Got it, got it. Well, I'm sure they they miss you on the East Coast then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure I miss those. They were it's like a freight train outside my house every morning. There you go. All right. Well. Let's get started. And let's just ask start with the basics. How did how did you get started in network security? Yeah, so I, realistically, you know, any anyone who's kind of owns a network, you you are somewhat responsible for network security, right? So my my background is in engineering on the network engineering side of things. And and we got into to network security pretty early on in my career. So after after college, I went to go work for a big carrier, and uh, in that carrier, you know, carriers at the time didn't really care so much about security. It was more just how how quickly can I pass bits 
around and and you know all those extra services were kind of the customer's issue then i moved into like a consulting space where well you know we're now i was that customer and now we were the ones building these networks for customers and you had to take into account network security that kind of migrated into and i was able to carry forward that same sort of mentality when when i went back into the service provider space uh and realized really early that that was kind of what was coming next in the early 2000s is from a carrier perspective is how you could add value, how you could provide a better service to your end customers was by bundling together, not just here's your internet pipe, but what sort of internet service, you know, security services could I place on top? Of it? So it seemed to be a somewhat natural transition, at least for me. It felt that way. Gotcha, gotcha. So in those kind of early days, who were some of the first customers that you were protecting from EDOS attacks? Oh, yeah. So so, so what ended up happening as I, I was back in Phoenix, so that's where I'm from. I was back in Phoenix and I was running a uh, an ISP here. And uh, we, were, we were kind of a data center slash ISP and we provided services to a bunch of customers. Well, we, we had a built-in product that was kind of like our our in our company, it was sort of our sister product that was a content company. So we had a lot of bandwidth, which, you know, at the time today, people would laugh, but, you know, at the time it was 20 to 30 gigs worth of capacity, right? And this, this capacity was all outbound. So it was, we were pushing content to the, to the world. Uh, so we had a lot of available c- capacity inbound. Well, in the DDoS world, that was sort of a natural fit. So. Um, there was a, a gentleman who had started a, a DDoS protection company, uh, and his name was Barrett Lyon. And, and Barrett came to us and he, he said, you know, I need inbound bandwidth and I need a lot of it, right? Because, you know, these attacks are taking down carriers or, you know, they were taking down carriers, but they were also taking down uh, some of his clients. And he said, I, you know, I could use your bandwidth. Could I put my gear in your data center and you know, we'll, we'll fight these attacks and, you know, our customers will be happy. Well, you know, come to find out a lot of those customers were offshore gaming customers, right? These were, you know, Costa Rican um, um, gambling sites, things like that. And so it was, um, it was kind of an interesting time, you know, it, the service grew beyond that, but, you know, some of these, they, they weren't your, tr- what we, you know, today DDoS is a, is a, an extremely common problem that it kind of spans across all industries from banking to energy to e-commerce, you name it. And, and back then, that just kind of really wasn't the case. It was, it was, you know, gambling. It was people selling bootleg erectile dysfunction pills. It was, you name it. It, it was a lot of different things. It was a very different time uh, for this. You know, th- that started to change. I mean, it, it did change in about 2008. The attackers realized that, you know, geez, it's not just these other sites that have a lot to lose, but banks do. And, and I can use this as a, for a lot of different reasons. I can use it for anti-competitive. I can, you know, I can launch a t- an attack at some, against somebody just for political reasons, right? So you'd send a nation state attacks and it really exploded, uh, I would say in about 2008 is when it really, really kind of went widespread. And the problem just kind of continues to get worse and worse. Well, let me ask, in, the, in those earlier days, who who are generally the major adversaries trying to take down these gambling outfits or fake pharmaceuticals? And, and what were they, you know, 
I'm sure things have changed, uh, techniques have changed, but you know, how were they launching their DDoS attacks back then? Yeah, so the, there's some uh, really crazy stories from back in the day. You know, the the some of the original attacks against the the gambling sites were, oddly enough, it was like they, these were um, Russian mafia, you know, organized crime, Eastern European organized crime groups, and and you know what had happened is is well, there's some rumors about what happened. Uh, but really what had happened was, you know, these, these groups realized that, that they could launch some attacks fairly easily. Their botnets were fairly easy to build. Um, you know, they were doing bots for like spam and things like that anyway. And so it became really simple as part of some of these operations to, well, if I'm, I'm not just sending spam, I'm not just, you know, taking over passwords, things like that. I can just send a bunch of traffic at somebody's site from a thousand devices on the internet. And those thousand devices now can overload, send enough traffic to overload somebody's site. And, you know, these, a lot of these gambling sites, you know, like I said, they're down in Costa Rica. And at the time, I think all of Costa Rica was off of like a single OC3, which is 155 megabits per second for you know, people who've never talked Sonnet before. Um, you have to, I feel like you have to be somewhat old to know what Sonnet even is. But, um, <laughs> The, uh, you know, so it was like 155 megs. So if I sent 200 megs, the entire country was offline. And, and that actually happened a few times, wow. you know, and backup was satellite at like, you know, 10 megabits for, or probably, I think it was more like 1.5. It was like a T1 uh, type of capacity. So, you know, the backups didn't really help a whole lot and the attackers just went after that. And so, you know, you could take down huge swaths of the internet and huge parts of the world. Um, not just the sites. And so, you know, the attackers realized that I could, by doing this, I'd send a threat and just demand $50,000 sent by Western Union. And as part of that, you know, you either paid or you got attacked. And, you know, the thing that was really bad is that even if the attack happened, it didn't just affect them, it affected everybody that was hosted down there. Uh, you know, everybody w was was subject to this. And so you know, it really became a huge problem back in those early days. But it did kind of change. Like over time, I would say one of the big turning points is uh, the early days of Anonymous. Um, Anonymous started attacking the Church of Scientology, right? There was you know, lots of news about this. And I'm not really saying anything proprietary or anything. Um, there, they started attacking uh, Anonymous. And and, you know, at first it was telling people in chat boards to just go to their browser and hit refresh a lot, which, you know, was really quite easy to block and, and you know, kind of rudimentary. It's sort of the equivalent of smashing rocks together for DDoS. Um, but then, you know, then the, tool, the, the low, or low orbit ion cannon tool came out. Uh, and that, I want, I want to say didn't really change the game, but it did start to, right? It was a, it was a stressor tool. It was it was an open source tool that people could use to test their own network, and they just told everybody to go download it and start launching these attacks. You know, I, I think what people didn't really fully grasp at the time is that all of those attacks were, you know, in the TCP world they were stateful, which meant that there was no spoofing. We had everybody's IP address, and of course, you know, during that time the FBI comes knocking with with a warrant and says well you know 
these guys have complained, the church has complained, and we want to, you know, you know, we need your logs. And so we would give them the logs of all of these IP addresses that were that were hitting our clients that we were blocking and, and fighting. And so we gave them, you know, had to give up everything we had because we had a warrant. So, um, you know, I don't, I think there was a few arrests around that, not a lot. But the, the part that always cracked me up is that people started calling us. They would literally call us and leave us voicemails, like threatening us, you know, try to overwhelm our support line and things like that. And so needless to say, some of those voice recordings got sent off as well. But it was it was definitely a wild time, um, very wild time in the Internet. Wow, that that does sound wild. And so if we think about ransomware now, we know that it's kind of the latest and biggest threat to enterprises. But during that time, c- can we think about cyber criminals threatening to uh, kind of enact a DDoS attack as a precursor to ransomware? Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I think you, you certainly would, right? Because there's a lot of reasons why people are launching any sort of attack, right? Whether it's, it's DDoS or ransomware or anything. And, you know, in those days, it was, you know, it was a lot of what we used to call script kiddies, right? It was kind of, you know, people that, simply wanted to do something to prove that they could do it, right? I'm going to, I'm going to take down, you know, somebody's Minecraft server, Doom server, because, you know, the guy beat me. Um, or it's, uh, you know, it could be anti-competitive. And we had, we had a lot of cases where somebody hired uh, an attacker to attack a competitor and to take them offline. You know, and they would do this during kind of peak periods and uh, or during kind of heavy times uh, where, you know, normally business would be, be big, like during like Black Friday kind of sales uh, or in the gambling world. It was during like Super Bowl or Grand National racing if you're in the in Europe so, sort of thing. And so they were it was a lot of anti-competitive. Well, I think what you've seen is is a lot of this has kind of migrated to. Well, not only can I disrupt and I can uh, I can send extortion letters, I can also get money. There's a lot of value in this data uh, that I can gather. So, you know, by launching any sort of attack, I can I can grab the data, I can keep the data, I can sell it, I can leak it. You know, and I think this, you know, as we've seen, this problem just continues and continues and continues, and there is no end in sight for any of it, right? And I think one of the sad things is it's become somewhat passe at this point, hasn't it? Where now it's just, you know, these, the news of yet another company getting hacked or yet another company, you know, having ransomware and, and being taken offline for that just almost seems just like par for the course. It's, it's another piece of news that you just kind of go, Oh yeah, my password was stolen again. Okay. You know, time to get a new, co- time to get a new credit card, right? Hey there, I wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to bring up this interesting DDoS fact. Did you know the first DDoS attack occurred over 20 years ago? From technologyreview.com, July 22nd, 1999 is an ominous date in the history of computing. On that day, a computer at the University of Minnesota, go Gophers, suddenly came under attack from a network of 114 other computers infected with a malicious script called Trinu. Trinu consisted of a network of compromised machines involving masters and daemons, allowing an attacker to send denial-of-service instructions to a few masters, 
which then forwarded instructions to the hundreds of daemons to commence a UDP flood against the target IP address. This code caused the infected computers to send superfluous data packets to the university, overwhelming its computer and preventing it from handling legitimate requests. The attack knocked out the university computer system for over two days. What interesting cybersecurity stories do you want to share? Reach out to us at lockandshield at team.newstar. That's L-O-C-K-A-N-D-S-H-I-E-L-D at team.newstar. Now back to the podcast. Let me ask you, because it sounds like there's been an evolution in some of the techniques and sophistication. You mentioned a low orbit ion cannon. I remember that um, back in those days. But is it harder or easier today to defend against DDoS attacks? Because I'd imagine, you know, obviously the, the sophistication of the tools used to prevent or stop these attacks has improved as well. So has it gotten easier or is it still is it still a game of cat and mouse catching up with the criminals and, and their advances as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you see corollaries in this across, you know, all crime, right? Where the instant you, the attackers, the attacker will start, and then the instant that the defender puts something up, the attackers will kind of change a vector, and they'll find a new way around something, and they'll find a different way to do it. So, I mean, I, I think just the cat and mouse, get, cat and mouse game 100% continues, right? Every single time we get, like, you know, there'll be an attack that'll come in. It can be devastating for, you know, a short period of time uh, if it's something brand new. But then the the problem is, is that the tried and true methods still work, right? So both on the offense and the defense, the scale has gotten bigger. So at the same time, I, I it's a weird answer because I think while the tools have gotten more commonplace to launch attacks, right? You can... You can, you can go and you can rent botnets for a few dollars a day type of thing, you know, for a bunch of these botnets. And it's, it's really easy to do this, you know, and they're just, they're online stressor tools is what they, what they're kind of considered. So they're very easy to go get. Um, there's a lot more devices on the internet than there ever was before. So it's easier to scale attacks. It's easier to, to, um, you know, really throw a lot of traffic at somebody or even not, even if it's not a lot of traffic a lot of connections at somebody because that can be almost even more damaging. And so, you know, they don't necessarily, I can send a lot of really, really small packet sizes and that can be problematic. So it's just, you know, with the explosion of like IOT, the explosion of the internet simply growing, right? Places that didn't have good internet connectivity, mobile now is so much more ubiquitous. It's while yeah, our techniques and things that we do have advanced, the size of our networks have advanced, our tools that are available to us have advanced, the attackers are continuing to advance as well. So it's it's very much an arms race. And, you know, like I said, I think that you see corollaries to that all the time. You know, the if someone really wants to get into your house, you know, the, the first time they can just walk up, unlock, unlock the door. So you lock the door and then the next time they smash the window. So you put in an alarm and then the next time, you know, next time you have the alarm, they figure out how to get around your alarm and, and, you know, then you get a dog and then they just figured out they can, you know, throw something at your dog, a sleeping pill at your dog, and now they can get in just fine. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just like this nonstop over and over and over again, you know. So we've talked a lot about DDoS attacks becoming much bigger and much more prevalent. Could you speak to the evolution of WAF? Yeah, absolutely. I, 
you know, so kind of along the same lines as what we were just talking about, where like this continuing evolution and this arms race, well, one of, one of the ways in which attackers have evolved is uh, over the years is they've started going deeper and deeper into the application. And so, you know, some, uh, you know, while this has always happened, we've always had attacks against whether it was, you know, DNS as an application or HTTP as an application, you know, a lot of these attacks uh, were kind of continued to be volumetric of sorts, right? So I could still send an HTTP request, I could just send a lot. Of them. Well, you know, as software has uh, gotten more and more complex, as websites and the capabilities of websites have gotten more and more complex, or just more things have gone online, there's more opportunities to, to take advantage of the vulnerabilities in all of this software that exists. And that's kind of where things like WAF and, and bot management have come into play, where, you know, kind of the next evolution from DDoS was heavily going into the WAF space, which is that web application firewall, which kind of was taking the concept of like what you used to do with like literally firewalls, but firewalls weren't really well suited for this, right? Because firewalls are more about protecting like your individual desktop and your LAN than it was necessarily your internet facing capabilities. So like your web servers or mail servers, things like that. And so what really evolved was this idea of the web application firewall, which goes deeper into the HTTP, HTTPS stack uh, to and do more enforcement to protect the application. And what's kind of interesting about it is, is these aren't things that are volumetric. This isn't a volumetric kind of attack. These are literally one, two packets type of attack that you, do, you, know, you don't need huge amounts of traffic in order to take advantage of a vulnerability in some software. You just need to be able to get to it um, from anywhere on the internet. And so that's why kind of WAFs evolved to sit in front of things. And, you know, like there's, there's the, the classic cases of things like uh, SQL injection or cross-site scripting, which, you know, kind of everybody's heard about forever. And there's kind of perfectly legitimate use cases around this, but there's also nefarious use cases for them. And so often that this is kind of the things that WAF have evolved to take advantage of. And then, you know, the second you did that, now you had people that, you know, at the same time, the attackers have, have continued to evolve. They still use the DDoS. They still use WAF uh, or, or kind of application attacks and, the, you know, kind of your traditional OWASP top 10 type of attacks. And now they've started looking at more sort of human-like behavior. So things like account takeover. You've started to look at things like uh, credential stuffing, kind of testing accounts. You've started to look at things like, um, you know, uh, like website scanning or, you know, scanning, you know, ripping content off to reuse it with other sites and kind of aggregate sites. And that all, those, a lot of, a lot of those things will fall under like the, the bot management side. So the idea is that, you know, a browser can look, uh, or an incoming can connection can look extremely realistic in that world and so there's a lot there's a bunch of techniques that you use to try to decipher out the stuff that is more um human-like versus not human-like what is a bot on the internet attacking and so that bot it doesn't really matter like you know we can use a lot of our normal techniques if it's volumetric but for a lot of these bots it's more one two connection type of things but they're doing things in a certain way with certain patterns and certain, you know, um, uh, grammar, things like that in a way that doesn't look human-like. 
And so bot is, is about detecting the behavior of the inbound connections, not just protecting the site itself. And that's really the evolution that you see where, where this is going. So Matt, let me ask you, because you've talked, you've talked a bunch about network security and DDoS and application security in the WAF. We know over the last decade or decade and a half, there has been a major transition of enterprises, companies moving their infrastructure from being on-premise to in the, being in the cloud, hosting in the cloud. How has that impacted network and applications, net, network and application security from your standpoint? Yeah, so I mean, what that's really done is it's somewhat de-emphasized the network side of that, right? So what you've been able to do, and this is the whole purpose of going to the cloud, is I no longer have to maintain the hardware infrastructure, right? I no longer have to maintain the network. I can basically take that the network piece and I kind of push the onus of that off to my cloud provider. Um, and so, like in this case, you know, while there is still DDoS is still a problem, uh, and while, it, but it kind of you're kind of pushing the you're pushing the onus of protecting this to that cloud provider who now has huge networks with tons of compute to be able to handle connections. Now, the downside of this is that with all that compute and they give you, you know, they've got the ability to do kind of scale groups and things like that and auto scale your site to be able to handle the amount of inbound traffic that, you know, there's still a DDoS component to that, right? Because I can scale up automatically to fight a DDoS or to handle more inbound connections, whether they're legitimate or not, but it doesn't really you know, in the end, you're going to pay for that, right? You're paying for that scale. And so while there are some DDoS components in there and you can buy some DDoS services in each individual cloud, what you don't really know in a lot of this is kind of the capabilities that are uh, of what that can do to protect your site. And the same thing goes on like the WAF side, uh, where, you know, if you're kind of protecting your application and you're protecting your application firewall uh, with an application firewall, you are, you kind of don't really have a lot of, you know, you don't know what the capabilities are. And now increasingly, I think something like 70% of our customer base is either multi-cloud or on their path to multi-cloud, right? right. And I, I heard this from a, a customer in a webinar I did uh, the other week that said that he made the quote that like, yeah, we, we, we're collecting clouds like they're Pokemon. Um, <laughs> Uh, and he said, it's really hard on the security side of things because now I've got, you know, these X number of cloud environments and cloud native sounds really, really interesting uh, because, you know, you can add it on. It can be fairly cheap. But what I don't have is this consistency of policy across all of it. And, you know, even if they do block some stuff, I don't really have any assurances that that block is, is I have to like manually take that block from one and put it into another. So this is where, like, from our perspective, what we've done is a lot of the capabilities that we've had for a long time, uh, while we've always been able to protect the network side of things, a lot of the capabilities that we've, that we've had also protect the cloud environments. And so the customer can kind of like seamlessly take this. And it, it's a really good story to tell when somebody is in the middle of cloud transitions where you have this on-premises and we want to protect the network of your data center there. And as you're migrating to cloud environments to be able to add those into that same service and have like an, a, a seamless interface, a seamless experience, and a consistency of the policies that you're putting in place, 
across that entire spectrum. And so there, there's, it's kind of, it's been interesting, uh, you know, to kind of like tell that same story as you migrate, but it is, there's a lot of power behind it, right? Because it is this idea of, of we try to make it simple and then by the nature of what we do, we're simplifying that transition for the customers while still allowing them to stay secure. Hey there, are you looking for a web application firewall to protect your most critical online applications? Newstar's UltraWAP provides a powerful, yet easy to manage tool for protecting your web assets from today's application attacks. Through our intuitive and easy to use API, or through our comprehensive APIs, you can apply a seamless level of security policies across your entire web infrastructure, regardless of whether it's located in a public cloud, private cloud, private data center, or spread across them all. Backed by Newstar's Ultra DDoS Protect platform, we will ensure your applications are always on ultra secure. To learn more, please visit home.newstar and navigate to the security solutions section. Now back to the podcast. So we've talked about some of the kind of historical advers- adversaries or who the adversaries were in the early days, but who who are the current adversaries now? Um, yeah, so what you've started to see more and more nation state type of attacks. Um, so, you know, on the government side of things, I mean, just going back, uh, even, I guess, maybe 10 years ago now when jo- the country of Georgia was invaded, not too long ago, uh, back in 2013, when Ukraine was inv- invaded. Actually, it's not right. It wasn't 2013. Um, I don't know, whenever Ukraine was invaded. You know, when, when Ukraine was invaded, uh, we saw attacks, cyber attacks that happened around the same time. And so, you know, while we've seen that as a prevalent way, because again, it is a great way just to disrupt networks. And um, across the board, it, it, it's kind of, I always equate it to like somebody's trying to pick your pocket. If my goal is whether I'm a nation state or I'm hired to, to hack a company uh, or I simply want to hack a company because I want to steal all the passwords and all the data uh, to sell it or embarrass them or whatever the case may be. By DDoS is a really good way to get people's attention, right? If I can send a terabit per second attack at your network, that is attention grabbing. That gets ELT members on board. Your executives are all on the phone. Everybody's talking about how your entire network's down. Um, or at least like the public facing sides are, are down. Meanwhile, the attacker could have found that one part of your network that they could, they, they could take advantage of, and they're able to come in from a vulnerability perspective. And now they're in there, they're stealing your passwords, they're stealing everything, but you're paying attention to the big, ugly attack. And that's, you know, this is why people buy like DDoS services like ours, right? Is because offload that, let, let, company the professionals handle that with a big network it's not going to take you down it's not something that's going to be a problem and you can focus on uh on like the actual protecting your internal network and uh and then we can take over the WAF side of things so we can do those level of protections as well we can protect against the bots so we can do that as well you know what you're still going to have and there's always going to be that case is people always have need to protect their internal networks looking for data exfil, things like that. So Matt, so 
so tell us then you've talked a bit about, you know, how Newstar Solution helps its customers. Can you can you dig into that a bit? How does Newstar's Ultra DDoS Protect Solution fit into the security ecosystem? And who are the target customers? Yeah, so we are like like more of like a mid-size, mid to large enterprise. So we can really service anybody, but we re- really do target our service as as an enterprise level service. And so, you know, with that, we we provide a gamut of services from that network protection, you know, having a 12 terabit network that is 100% dedicated to fighting these attacks. And that, that attack doesn't matter whether it is a DDoS attack that is large, and we've fought some of the largest out there. Um, we, we, we get large attacks about every couple of weeks at this point, um, all the way down to very, very small attacks. And like I said, even the targeted attacks that fall into like the WAF and bot management space to be able to protect against these types of things. Um, so our service really runs the gamut of being able to protect across that. And what's really interesting is that we do this through one network that can protect the entire customer, um, and we do it through one interface. So we're not, you know, there's not multiple networks here. This network isn't shared with other services that might also be high value. So, you know, if there's ever a large DDoS attack, you may not be 100% certain what you're getting. This is what we do. This is all we do, Right. So, you know, as part of that, the, um, you know, we give you that seamless experience where, you know, you can see all of your DDoS attacks, you can see all of your application attacks all through the same interface, whether that's API or web, or you want us to webhook this out to your seam, whatever it is you're looking for, you know, our service has these capabilities to be able to do this. And the great thing is, is it's 100% managed and it's backed by uh, our SOC, which is a 24-7 SOC that um, these are the experts that you get. You know, you're not kind of calling someone who has to call somebody else and forward on tickets or anything like that. If you open a ticket, you call our SOC, you are getting the experts that are ones doing the fighting of these attacks. So it's a little unique in that in that perspective. Um, you know, we really strive to be provide a high quality service that is pretty easy to work with and and effective at blocking attacks. And so like our customer base really runs uh, the, the entire spectrum, as you can imagine. While we do have a lot of those kind of traditional kind of, uh, you know, even some of the more established uh, gambling sites, you know, poker, things like that, um, those all still exist. That's all still a problem. So our, our customer base uh, really uh, runs the spectrum, right? So we have some of the largest banks in the world on our platform that are uh, we provide services for you know a lo- lot of financial services on top of not just public banks but fi- uh, you know financial services energy companies e-commerce companies uh and media and so we really we're able to do a lot of the kind of the largest companies in these spaces uh that we provide services to and we protect all of them it doesn't really matter whether you're big or you're small um you know we're able to protect all of these customers. Thanks, Matt. That was a great overview. Uh, so same question for UltraWAF. Where where does it fit in the security ecosystem and who are the target customers? Yeah, so I think the, the, the customers there are fairly similar, right? I think, you know, anyone who has a website, you have, you're running services uh, and whether you're small or large, you have one of the great things that WAF can do for you on top of protecting your website 
uh, and you have these vulnerabilities sitting behind the scenes, you know, while we can protect a lot of those, you know, sometimes new vulnerabilities are popping up all the time. So one of the things that we, that we offer for our, uh, and this tends to be really, really valuable to like small companies, but you know, even for large companies is, you know, you have these really large complicated systems, uh, with, you know, lots of web servers, lots of applications running, going in and patching for that latest CVE on any one of these things can be problematic, right? Because when you're doing patching, inevitably, there's a lot of kind of follow on issues, right? So I, I can patch for one thing, and inevitably, that patch will create four or five other issues that now I have to deal with. And that's whether that's because of versioning or prerequisites and requirements, you name it. Uh, so what our WAF lets you do is to find the CVE. And if it's something that can be blocked in the network, we can do that virtual patching in the network for you. And so, you know, this is why like a lot of the small businesses like this because, well, you know, as part of being PCI compliant, if I take credit cards, these are things where, you know, like a great case is Magento, right? Magento being one of the, the kind of shopping cart platforms. Ye this is about to go 1.0 is becoming deprecated. Anyone who has 1.0 is no longer going to be PCI compliant. And when you're out of compliance, there's a financial cost to this. So being able to come in and as sort of a stopgap, be able to block a lot of the vulnerabilities that exist in these things, or PHP is another case. There's a lot of people using really old versions of PHP and uh, for a variety of reasons. And that's even large companies are doing this. But going back in and completely overhauling all of your platforms, your entire application to fit this isn't always the most feasible way to deal with the problem. So being able to do some virtual patching to, to fill that is uh, is a huge use case behind using something like our WAF. So it really fits into this where you know what we see is a lot of the DDoS, the DDoS sometimes will fit with like the network guys, right? It's, it's your network team. They're the ones who kind of handle the DDoS connection because uh, that's at the network layer. The WAF stuff will often be either with like the content folks, the folks that run the websites, or, you know, it's with the application teams, basically. And so, and in some cases, it's it's all in one. And, you know, it's everybody, the, the same group is doing everything within the company. But so we, we, our product really works across both of those sets of groups and solves both sets of groups problems of we can handle your network, we can handle your network security, as well as that application and protecting that application from, a, you know, and a gamut of attacks, as well as I would, you know, kind of consider protecting it against the, the natural progression of software as things become deprecated and you have to redevelop for it. You can use things like virtual patching to buy yourself time to, to, to do that patching because um, it's not always easy to do it right away. Now, Matt, let me ask you, and, and I know you're aware of this, both uh, Paige and I are very, very much involved, closely tied to New Star's Ultra Geopoint product. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, how does how does something like Ultra Geopoint enhance the the Ultra DDoS Protect and Ultra WAF offerings? Yeah, so in our portal, we use uh, we've been developing it to fit the concept of analyze, investigate, and action. And so, as part of the analysis and as part of the investigate, 
we allow customers uh, as you know, if you see an IP address in our platform and it's an inbound IP and you're not really sure what it's doing, uh, we give you the ability to kind of kind of click and you can see, you know, the, this uh, enhancement of the data and you're allowed, you know, you, you can basically click on it and look over it and you can get all the IP geo information about that. Um, we're also doing a, well, it's also the IPI side of things, right? So you can, you're able to see all the information that we have about that IP address or some of it. I don't know. Do you know if it's all? I don't think it's all. But we allow our customers to see a lot of the information about those IP addresses that are coming into their network. Um, we also do things like geo blocking uh, so that, you know, customers can select and they can say, you know, I don't want traffic, uh, particularly at like the WAF level. Uh, you can say, I don't want to see traffic that is beyond, you know, the US, for instance. And so we kind of leverage a lot of the IP geo stuff in order to, to kind of uh, help fence that. And anything that comes in from outside gets blocked or rate limited or whatever it might be, whatever the customer is looking to do. And so we can do that and kind of identify this so that, you know, if we have a lot of traffic, if a customer is, you know, only from the U.S. and they suddenly see huge, massive spikes from coming from outside the U.S., it's a very effective mitigation technique just to drop that traffic. Um, and, you know, not, not to mention, especially in the financial services world, uh, you have a lot of customers who simply say, I can't operate outside the U.S. I have no interest in that. So just drop it, drop that traffic because our customers should not be coming from there. We're only in the U.S. And so, you know, we do a lot of things uh, like that. And that's kind of how a lot of our products start to work together um, in order to enhance and that analysis and the investigate element of this. Um, and then based on those action and, and block and do something on that. So that's kind of where, where we really tie these things together. Um, you know, we're looking forward to, to continuing to doing more and more and more as we go forward. Cool. So, so what's next? What are the future plans for New Stars Ultra DDoS Protect and Ultra WAF? Yeah. I mean, you know, in this world, we, uh, it, it, it's a lot about adding capacity both in terms of just sheer network capacity, you know, keeping up with the largest sites of attacks, you know, we're at 12 terabits per second. That's we're nowhere near the largest size of attacks, but it is kind of continuing, right? Like you, you want to always add more and you want to kind of keep going there uh, as well as adding new regions, new, you know, new, new areas in which we can service. So you're going to be seeing that from us in the, in over the coming, you know, month, year, things like that. We're going to continue to grow this network. And I talked a bit about the, the bot management and the API protection. And so bot management is, uh, we're releasing kind of our first version of that now uh, in, the, in like the next month. Uh, that's going to be going public. We're going to be getting into more of the heuristic style. So this is more looking at, I, I kind of mentioned about the, the behavior of that inbound connection, that, that user to your site. Do they look like they're acting like human? Do they look like they're acting like a bot? Um, we're adding those kind types of capabilities in uh, a little bit later in the year uh, as well. And then I think probably in the early next year, uh, we'll, we're going to be fine-tuning our API protections. And so API, it's, it's like a lot of things where we can protect APIs today, right? So we can use our WAF, we can use our DDoS, and we can protect these APIs. 
where it gets interesting is being able to dive deeper into the structure of the API uh, and being able to look at like in have have the protections be aware of what type of API it is. Is it JSON? Is it XML? Uh, uh, what is it? And then being able to to protect individual fields, whether that's for content or length or, you know, am I seeing too many entries and somebody's trying to brute force a connection, um, as well as protecting, you know, credentials for the API. So if somebody is, is coming in and they're kind of, you know, abusing the same uh, you know, the, the same API key over and over and over again, but from a bunch of different IP addresses, you can start to protect those kinds of things. So sometimes that's just a misconfiguration. Sometimes it's malicious. So we have the ability to kind of help our customers through that. And a lot of that, like I said, a lot of that exists today. Some of the, the awareness of what the structure is, that's something that's kind of coming a little later. All right. Well, thanks for sharing. It, it's interesting to hear the, the the future roadmap, future features coming down the line. Um, unfortunately, with that, we've come to the end of our podcast. So, so Matt, many thanks for joining us today and sharing uh, these fascinating experiences you, you've had in the cybersecurity space. A lot of interesting stories and insights there. So, so thank you for joining. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me. This has been fun. It's always fun to go back and reminisce. No, certainly. Those are uh, again interesting as we think back to the the early days of the internet and the the initial disruptions we've had from ddos attacks and let me say thanks always to Paige enoch for joining me today and helping to produce our podcast yeah thanks john and thanks matt that was really fascinating and i definitely learned a lot well, thanks for having me guys and to our listeners thanks again for checking into the lock and shield podcast we'll be talking to you soon